0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Superhero Finder podcast with myself as always Matt Wilson searching the cosmos and the galaxy for all unsung heroes and superheroes and all sorts of strengths and telling some really cool tales as well so today um, I've got with me all the way over in the states who will go a little bit more into that it's Terry Tucker how are you doing Terry? I'm great Matt thanks for having me on Absolutely welcome. So first thing, where are you in the States? Because I seem to be doing a bit of a trip around the States at the moment. It's amazing. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. I'm in Denver, Colorado. I did wonder what MT was. It's Mountain Time, isn't it? Yeah, Mountain Time. Exactly. Fabulous. Fabulous. And because um, you've not always lived there, have you? No, actually, I was, I was born in Chicago, probably the third largest city in the United
1: States lived live uh, when I went to college on the East Coast in Charleston, South Carolina, you know, lived in the Midwest. My wife and I, when we got married, moved to California. So the the Pacific side, the West Coast of the United yeah. States, lived in the Gulf Coast, and now finally, I think we've found our our forever place here in Denver. That's fantastic, and I bet it's a bit quieter out there, isn't it? It, it, it really is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, although you know, a lot of people are moving here, so it's yeah. kind of
0: getting that big city feel. So. Yeah, there's, there's something really almost poetic about that. You've seen all the different colors and shapes of the states and everything that you've got to offer on that, obviously on that large um, continent, but then actually finding, you know, after all the stuff you've done, finding that almost, that peacefulness. Um, but I say it may grow, but that w- with it may come a, a good sense of community, right? Because it's coming from good, strong foundations of that.
1: It, it does. I mean, my wife and I both grew up in the Midwest. You know, where we, you know, kind of came from that hearty stock of, you know, really hard winters you know cold blowing snow all that stuff and the nice thing about denver is we have the winters but you know we could get 25 inches of snow today and tomorrow it could be sunny and 50 degrees so there isn't that constant gloom and doom that you have all winter in the
0: midwest so that's one of the reasons we like it out here that wow that'd be unexpected so you've got to have everything ready for all occasions yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's incredible oh man that's great um, so Terry, one of the first things I wanted to ask you is if you could just introduce a little bit about what you do now, I know there's, as we said before, we came on air that you've got a very colorful, um, uh, kind of career with different roles and I'd love to go into that, but what is it that kind of brings you here today and wanting to, to talk and spread messages and so forth? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I have had
1: a very diverse, uh, business, uh, resume background in in that regard but I mean really what what I've been battling with through all that for the last 10 years is a is a very rare form of cancer that literally appeared on the bottom of my foot when I was a girls high school basketball coach and initially I didn't think much of it and after it didn't heal for a couple weeks I went to see a podiatrist a foot doctor friend of mine and he took an x-ray and said Terry I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me, just a little gelatin sack with Mm -hmm. some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to have it examined. And then two weeks later, I get this call from him. And like I said, he was a friend. And the more difficulty he was having explaining what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. Until finally, he just laid it out for me. And he said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And that started my 10-year cancer journey through a drug called interferon, through having my leg amputated, through having my foot amputated first, and then my leg amputated. And even now, I have tumors in my lungs, and I'm being treated for those. Wow. Wow.
0: I can imagine when you said then about the difficulty of your friend being able to explain that. Now you know him and his role as a professional and as a doctor and being able to deliver some difficult messages to people and and being used to that, I suppose, as part of the process. But then, because you guys are friends, right? It you know becomes more difficult to do so, doesn't it? Because an emotion and and everything else becomes involved. Um. Now. I don't know much. Obviously, it's a very, very rare form of cancer. So what does that what does that look like or what did that look like? What was the prognosis? What does that look like? Kind of what challenges are you going to face with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, initially it was it, it was kind of a death sentence. Uh, you know, melanoma had been one of those things. Um, I, I actually uh, did a podcast yesterday with a, a dermatologist, a, a doctor. And, and he was telling me how when he, he, and he's probably in his 70s. But when his dad got melanoma, it was a death sentence. They had, they had nothing. There, there was nothing, yeah. you know, no treatments or anything like that. And so, you know, I was like, well, you know, th- you're going to be lucky to live five years. Well, okay, you don't know me. You don't know, you know, my resolve. You don't know my mindset. You don't know anything like that. So I kind of dismissed that when, yeah. you know, when doctors say things like that. But, you know, it was literally, I had I had a surgery to remove the tumor on the bottom of my foot. And I had a surgery. To remove all the lymph nodes in my my groin. And then when I healed, my doctor put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. She used to describe it as we're trying to kick the can down the road to buy you more time. And I took those weekly interferon injections for almost five years. And the side effects were that I had severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection so imagine having the flu every week for five years and like i said that wasn't a cure that was just you know we're trying to buy you more time and eventually in 2017 the drug became so toxic to my body that i ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees which usually is not compatible with being alive somehow i survived that but i had to stop the interferon because of the toxicity and almost immediately the cancer came back in the exact same spot really? on my foot where it presented. So it, you know, it was five years of hell for maybe buying me some more time because now there are more therapies available for melanoma patients. I
0: mean, that's you know, just thinking about just for me trying to process that. I don't know what's listening to that, Jenny. Sometimes, you know, we may or may not know people that have been in similar situations. I haven't been in that situation, but I can only imagine what that feels like but as you say that these people don't know your resolve and i i do believe there is a massive massive link in between your brain and not necessarily stubbornness but it is a big part of it but that want that will to live and that will to survive and fight um and the immune system and them two working together um you know and 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 to say that you kind of you felt like you had flu type symptoms for pretty much nine months of the year effectively uh, yeah yeah
1: i mean i mean you know you you sort of you know you're coming out of it you have a few good days and then bang you know you're giving yourself another injection and you're going through it all over again so it just i mean it seemed like the hamster on the wheel you know you're just going (laughs) around and around and around
0: (laughs) so what about now then so you said there's more therapies now you know, what, what kind of treatments are you going through now and how So initially, um,
1: back in 2020, I, I had an undiagnosed tumor. Uh, I'd already had my foot amputated. Uh, the tumor was kind of in the bottom of my stump in my ankle, I guess, area, for lack of a better word, that grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And so my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And I also all found out then that I had tumors in my lungs. And, and I remember when I healed, I went to my oncologist and I was like, you know, what do you want to do? And he's like, I'd like to start you on chemotherapy. And I looked at him like, well, is that going to save my life? And he was like, probably not, but it might buy you some more time. And, you know, I was eight years into this fight and I, I was like, well, if the outcome is going to be the same, I'm not sure I want to do that. You know, I'm not sure I want to go through all yeah. that ugliness and, and pain and, and, you know, throwing up and losing your hair and all that stuff, if, if the outcome is going to be the same. And so I, I ended up going home and talking to my family and it, it's just my wife and daughter and I, it's kind of a funny story. So I said, you know, I went home and I said, well, here's what the doctor wants. And my daughter's like, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. <laughs> We've got a board or something like that, you know? I mean, so we sat around the kitchen table and we each talked about how we felt about me having chemotherapy. And then after we were done, my daughter's like, all right, let's, let's have a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute. Am I getting outvoted for something that, that I don't want to do? And right. I remembered right. when I was back in the police academy, our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people we love the most to class. And as we were learning different techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you'll fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. So I ended up taking chemotherapy because I love my family more than I love myself. I didn't want to do it. And in in hindsight, it was good because the chemotherapy shrunk the tumors that I had in my lungs and it was really a bridge. And I know this is a long-winded answer to your question. This was really a bridge to a, a clinical trial drug that I'm on now that I, I started with two other people, they unfortunately have passed away. But it, it is it is working for me in that it is keeping the cancer in my lungs It hasn't spread anywhere else. And it has shrunk the tumors, they're still there. But it, it it's, it's buying me time. And so there's all kinds of things, especially in a university setting, you know, if you're associated with a, a hospital that's associated with the university, yes, there's all kinds of clinical trials that that they're trying to do to find new ways for therapy so so i've been blessed because the chemotherapy worked to shrink the tumors and now all this clinical trial drug does is it unmasks the cancer from my immune system so the way cancer works is it hides from your immune system Uh, by secreting a protein and so this basically gets rid of the protein and the immune system says oh there's a tumor there we should go fight it so that's kind of how it's working now.
0: I never knew that, but that makes so much sense, and that's and that's why it grows so fast, and that's why it can grow undetected for a long time, right? right. Because you don't feel the effects of anything, right? Wow. So let's wind back. So you mentioned the police academy. So this is this is where I think you know probably we'll try to tie in some of the things that you. Uh, some of the messages that you give out and some of the things I know you, you speak a lot and you've been on maybe over 400 podcasts which is a lot of talking can I just say <laughs> sometimes it's hard to shut me up yeah <laughs> <laughs> people say that about me so it's all okay that, that's fine so and you had different roles within the police as well didn't you so you started off as a police officer and then there was SWAT in there as well I did I was uh yeah started
1: out as a as a cop, you know, running a a beat in uniform in a marked car. Then I moved to undercover narcotics. Uh, So I I was in in the drug unit and also became a SWAT team hostage negotiator. So yeah, I I was very uh, fortunate, very lucky to be associated with some of the, you know, the best people because SWAT is really, you know, they get the best training, they get the best officers and and stuff like that. So it, it, it was a lot of fun for me.
0: Do you think any part of who you are now is because of that experience in the police? Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I have. I, I would say you know from starting when I was little. You know, playing
1: basketball. I play. I went went to college on a basketball scholarship nice. and, yep. and played in college and and certain mell- my role in law enforcement and you know what I saw and and you know just. It, I mean, a lot of things you shouldn't see I mean, a lot of things you don't want to see. But yes, I I, I think my my life now, this cancer journey has has, I've been helped through the accumulation of of all the experiences really that I've had in my life, from my family to basketball, to law enforcement and and everything in between.
0: Yeah, I can I, I can definitely say that. I mean, I'm a massive fan of police programs, so I don't know whether, you know, you would sit and watch them and think, well, that's not how it actually happens. But I mean, I'm a massive NCIS fan and CSI and things like that. But, you know, I can understand some of the things you will see. You will see a whole range, a whole spectrum of things in life and how other people work and what other people can do and what, I suppose, what emotions can drive people to do as well or what we perhaps sometimes let our emotions do to us as opposed to being in control. So sometimes there's that element of feeling like you've lost control And maybe you know, saying or something else drove me to do an action, and it might be a crime or it might be a bad thing. And actually, look at you know, when we look at how we actually work, most of the time we have control. We just have biases, don't we, that help us make decisions? And we do. And and then then you 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 put the what I call the liquid
1: courage on top of it. You know, you put alcohol or drugs, or you know, and sometimes mental illness on top of it. Yeah. And, and then you understand why people do what they do. And I've always said you wouldn't need nearly as many police officers if you didn't have alcohol, drugs and yeah. mental illness, because that's probably 90 percent of the things that we dealt with in, in some form or another. You know, you have a you have a drug habit. You're, you're breaking into somebody's house because you need money to buy your your drugs. And so, I mean, it, it really kind of all is is interconnected. And it, it, you just you just see things you, you see what people will do especially when they're addicted, you know, to get that next fix. And 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 it is, yeah. it's subhuman in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, it is. and it, you know, it's absolute proof, I think, because I, I often reflect back to when, obviously I wasn't there, but when we used to, as a human race, when we used to live in tribes, and there was just very mm-hmm. basic things that we looked for, the idea of community, the idea of safety, and the idea of being part of something. Um right. You know, and nowadays we don't have to deal with that. We don't have to deal with knowing whether we're going to necessarily, whether we're going to go and need to hunt today or whether we're going to need to gather something today. There's a lot more involved. It's a lot more complex. But sometimes the brain's, I suppose, the brain's capability of whether it's adrenaline or whether it is emotions or whether it is uh, a mental illness or especially mental health from, from extremes, you know, it can... It can help along the way of, and sometimes cause you to do things in which, you know, which afterwards you think, well, how how did I manage that? So it's almost like there's a cap where we sit, and then there's past that, there's more potential, you know, to do and some of these crazy things. Because how often do you see, you know, somebody that doesn't drink, somebody that, you know, doesn't do drugs, and somebody that would consider themselves not having a mental health or mental illness committing a crime now there, there will there will be some but there's you know the majority like you say is is down to those three isn't it
1: it's crazy it, it really is i mean in terms of law enforcement now you know there's probably 10 times more white collar crime that's committed you know the yes but, but that's not you know that's not the stuff that you know ends up on police shows or on the news no. i mean nobody nobody cares when I mean, I'm not gonna say nobody cares. But you know, it, it's not a big story when somebody embezzles, you know, a million dollars from their company or something no. like that. And it's like, oh okay, yeah, well, you know, we'll find that guy, we'll take it, send him to jail. But yeah, it, it's the it's the man's inhumanity to man, you know, it's the things yeah. we do either to ourselves or to each other, because of as you said, you know, whether it's a mental illness, whether, you know, we had that liquid courage because we're hyped up on drugs or alcohol or something mm. like that, that we would never do if we were sober or if we weren't, weren't on that drug. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of outside forces that come into play. And, and then, you know, you ask, you, you know, most of society doesn't want to deal with that. I, I don't want to deal with that crazy person. You know, I, I'll never forget, you know, it was, it was, a, it was February where, and it was freezing. It was like 10 degrees mm. out. And we got a call from a guy he said my neighbor is climbing my fence and he's naked i'm talking no, no, no he's there's no way it's 10 degrees out he's free you know but the guy was so hyped up on methamphetamines mm. and methamphetamines prevent the body from regulating it, it, its temperature so he was hotter That's than right you know all get out so he's buck naked it's like i'm you know <laughs> I, I, I can't regulate my body temperature so we had to get them and take them to the hospital you know and most people hey we will call the police let them deal with that and that's why unfortunately you get to see some of the things you don't want to see
0: someone's got to do it right yeah and it's a
1: very admirable job but it's not well it's a, it's a great job until you make a mistake and then you know you're you're almost crucified because You know, you're 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 asked to make a life and death decision at Mm. three o'clock in the morning when it's, you know, 10 degrees out and you've had four hours of sleep and, and, you know, and and you do the best you can. You never want to hurt anybody. You never want to kill anybody. But sometimes circumstances, you don't have a choice. And, And it's always a shame when somebody dies. But, you know, it's like, look, I didn't put you in this situation. I got called to deal with you, so it's yes. It's not a good. It's not a good situation.
0: No, no, it's not. And just on that, actually, I've just had a thought. So I heard something on the. I think it was Stephen Bartlett on the Diary of a CEO podcast, and he'd been talking to, just out of chance, at um, an event Barack Obama, as you do, just casually. Um, sure. <laughs> And you know <laughs> he'll he be on your said, show next week,
1: right? <laughs>
0: yeah. And he'd said that during during some of the wars, um, when they were tracking down Osama bin Laden, um, and and when when it comes to, when it comes to war, that a lot of the time when they decide whether they're going to strike somewhere or not to capture somebody or to kill somebody, um, a terrorist or whatever, they're going on information but without actual maybe visual proof. So it's leads and and that and, and that's the way it works. You have to, and. Stephen actually asked him, he says, how do you know that you've made the right decision? At what point do you know that that's a yes and it's a no? You know, at what point do we strike or do we attack? And he actually said it was really interesting. He sat with me for a few days and he said, if the argument for doing it in my head with the proof gets to 51%, sure, I'll do it. i give 100% to it because at that point I know I've done enough. I've done enough to justify And believe that that's right if you end up chasing for 80 90 percent you never get there
1: yeah
0: and I thought you know and like you're just saying there you know when you're called to deal with someone there's that many different things that are affecting your ability to be a reason but there's still going to be that thought process that you go through to be able to to determine what's your best course of action your safest course of action isn't there
1: yeah, exactly. And and the other thing you've got to remember is a lot of times, you know, somebody else is calling this in, relaying information to a dispatcher who then is relaying information to us on the yes. way to the call. And that information may or may not be correct. I, I mean, and people and, and what used to drive us crazy were people would say, well, you know, hey, my neighbor's doing this and he's got a gun. Even if he doesn't have a gun, they fig- they feel if they say he's got a gun oh, that we're going to get there faster. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's like, yeah, but when you tell me he's got a gun, that puts a whole nother dynamic, yeah. you know, into the situation about how I'm going to do things. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, you know, your neighbor's stereos cranked up. You're, you're mad about it. And you call in and say, you know, he came out on the porch and he threatened me with a gun. Well, I'm going to handle that run a whole lot different than if you just say my neighbor's stereo or my neighbor's radio or television is is loud and I want you to ask them to turn it down. I mean, in that case, I'm just going to knock on the door and say, turn your your TV down. You know, in the other case, I'm probably going to get a bunch of units there and call you out of the house, you know, with your hands up and put you on the ground and and do all kinds of stuff that I probably didn't need to do. But your neighbor figured, well, if I say there's a gun, you'll get there faster. So, you know, we always, it kind of drove us nuts. We we're like, oh, there was no gun. Why did
0: you say that then? You know, I mean, we could have killed this guy. So, well, yeah, absolutely. And and for me, the other thing about that is if when you're preparing, so a lot of the time I can imagine when you're on the way to a call out, you're then preparing what your actions are going to be, what your options are and, and everything so that you can all work together to do it. Or if it's, you know, if it's just yourself or whatever, you you know already so that you can react to it. So if you think someone's got a gun, then automatically you think, well, a, there, they might be prone to violence. They might be prone to use it, you know. So you're already thinking all these things, which I dare say may change what your first reaction is. Whereas you, whereas if if it's not mentioned, and by and large, if somebody did have a gun, it would be mentioned. But if it's right. not mentioned and it's and it's the truth that they don't have one, then it's a completely different approach. Like you say, it's You, you wouldn't even think. You would still have that ability to react should you find a weapon, but you're going in for a conversation. You're not going in right. for a, what potentially would be a fight. Right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and that's, wow. that's the dynamic. You know, that's the you don't know. I mean, I was watching a, a video the other day where it was a, a call for I don't know, a child choking or something like that. And the officer is walking up to the apartment and there's a man standing just outside the apartment, sort of bladed. You can see him from the side. He's not facing you straight on. So you can't see his left hand. And the officer's like, you know, where's the child? Where's the child? And the guy just pulls the gun out and starts shooting at the cop. And it's like, whoa, you know, I mean, that goes from here's my mindset of you know, I'm going to help a child to, oh my God, I'm getting shot at. And he did get shot in the arm, you know, but it's like, that's the kind of, you know, those are the kind of situations that turn on a dime. And, you know, you're asked to make a life and death decision in a second, you know, and and you you have to process all this stuff. And, and, you know, nobody sits there and thinks, oh, I think I'm going to kill this guy today. I mean, nobody, no cop I ever worked with got up and said, you know, I'm going to go kill a black man today. No. It, it, shooting somebody is bad enough. Killing them, it stays with you for the rest of your life. I mean, yeah. you, you're you never the same after that. It's no. not something you ever want to have to do, but it's something that potentially you may have to do. And You know that every night when you go to work.
0: Because your aim is to protect as many people as possible, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I I mean you think about it, everybody's running away from the danger. You're the idiot that's running towards <laughs> it, you know, and, and that's that's you know counterintuitive to yeah. survival mechanisms and stuff like that.
0: So yeah, of course it does it takes a complete other other kind of person. And you know, not that I intended us to talk so much about this, but I think it's no, a really it's cool, a really cool subject. But you know, we are over in the UK, one of the only countries in the world that don't carry guns okay. at a street level. Now you know there is a lot less now. I don't know the stats, but there is a lot less gun crime because guns aren't as readily available. But there is still some, um, and obviously you guys, you know, have the the right to be able to carry. You know, and that's and that's something that's been in the constitution for a long, long time. Right. Um, do you think? I mean, what what do you think about that? What's not in terms of you guys, but I don't want to start any kind of outcry sure. in terms of you guys being at carry guns, but in terms of the two different approaches across across the countries, is, is, there, is there any conversation around that within the force or? I, I mean, it's, we just assume
1: now that everybody's armed. I I, I mean, yeah. I, I remember my very last day as a police officer, I was a sergeant and we got a run for, somebody was shooting outside uh, of, of an apartment building and they were, I don't know, seventh floor or something like that and they were shooting, down to people and you know so we approached you know we got a bunch of cars together approached got finally got up to the apartment where we were pretty sure it was coming from and there were these three guys in the apartment and they were playing computer games you know wh- whatever they were playing and so we ordered them out and, and you know and we searched them no guns and you know like when we searched the apartment there were no guns there and and so we did what's called a gunshot residue test on them. And, you know, mm-hmm. we tested their hands and it's not an immediate test. You have to send it to the lab. So you just take their information and let them go. But before we left the apartment, because none of the three people in the apartment lived in the apartment. They, right. you know, it wasn't like it was one of their apartments. So we, we sent them on their way after they're getting their information. And before we left, I said, one more time, we're going to do one more sweep of this place. And there was a drop ceiling and up in the drop ceiling. Yep. We found five guns. Oh, wow. And and so we took those guns. And I remember we were processing back at the district, and the night chief, who was a captain, been on by 30 years, he said, You know, Terry, when I started, we were lucky if we got a gun off the street, you know, one gun once a week. He's like, You guys get five and six guns a a night now off the street. So, you know, yes, we have a constitutional right. And I don't have any problem with a law abiding citizen having a gun, carrying a gun, training with a gun. I, my son-in-law is a huge gun person. I mean, he has all kinds of guns, but he trains with them. I mean, he's in the military and, and things like that. But from, you know, I don't care what the laws are. The bad guys don't care about the laws. The bad guys are going to find a way to get a gun if they want one. So, you know, to punish law-abiding citizens yeah. for the sake of the people, the you know, the criminals who have the guns doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. But on the other hand, as a police officer, you're like everybody's armed. You just have to have that mentality yes. that everybody you come in contact with has a gun. You may not see it, but they've got it somewhere.
0: This might be quite a strange question, but it's in Go there. So I'm going to ask it. Do you think, as a citizen, then, it makes you feel? It's hard to compare. Do you do you feel like the the citizens would also walk around? And think that everyone might have a gun, or is does it not work like that? I'm trying. I'm trying to think of the right. Way. Hopefully that hopefully that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it, it does. I, I, I mean, you know, there, we're taught kind of in law enforcement. You know, you, you know, wh- how do you operate? You know, in, in condition red, and condition yellow, and condition green. Yeah. And nobody operates in condition green anymore. Like, you know, hey, it's no big deal. Everything's yeah, good. Yeah. So you're either in condition. You know, I mean, even a traffic stop it's either a high risk traffic stop or it's unknown. You know, it's, it's not, there's never a low risk traffic stop. So, you know, we, we've gone away from, oh, Hey, you know, that's little Mary and Mary, you know, she's fine. Everything's good. No, Mary could have a gun just as well as anybody else. So I I think from my perspective, I always operate on, you know, I always scan when we go into a restaurant or something like that. I want to sit, with my back so that I can see the door, then nobody can get me. I, I mean, and that's just me. I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of, that's the way I was trained. So I think people need to be aware yeah. that people are armed. And 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 we've seen it, you know, we've seen road rage incidents where, yeah. you know, somebody felt you cut them off and they get out with a gun and they shoot at your car. You know, it's like really that's you're upset about that. You know, I'm sorry you got cut off. You're gonna you're gonna get to your destination ten seconds later than you would have originally. Is that enough to pull a gun out of? So people aren't rational when it comes to that. So I, I always kind of figure everybody's armed, and and I don't want a conflict. I want yeah. even as a police officer. I mean, what did we want? Voluntary compliance. We just wanted you to do what we asked you to do. Yeah. That's so all. We don't want to. We don't want to fight you. We don't want to shoot you. We don't want to. You know taser you or anything yep. like that yeah we just want voluntary compliance and that's what I as a citizen I'm like I'll back away from a fight and nope don't want to fight yet don't want to deal with it I, I don't want confrontation nope. because
0: somebody might get hurt <laughs> and that's no fun regardless no it's not is it no it's just there's been a few things there that I've wondered for a few years it was nice to actually be able to ask someone that's been at the front you know at the forefront of it sure um And then when you left the police force, slight change in career. varsity basketball coach. Girls basketball coach on top of that. Was was that an intentional move?
1: It it was our, our, our daughter, I I'm six foot eight and and my daughter got our height. So she was, she was a good basketball player and she's, she's six foot two. And so the coach they had really didn't know a lot about basketball so I'm like yeah I'd like to do this because I I think I know but I you know I I mean if you look at my life I have two brothers I have no sisters I went to a Catholic all-boys high school I went to a you know all-male military college and then you know my wife and I get pregnant and I remember going to the OBGYN and she's like do you want to know if it's a boy or a girl it's like yeah sure it's like, well, you should buy pink. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. You need to keep it in there until it's done. I don't know what to do with a girl, you know. <laughs> so so to, to actually raise a girl and then to be in a situation where I'm coaching girls was was definitely different. Because girls compete. I mean, girls are competitive, don't get me wrong. but But they're on a team for a different reason. It's more about the camaraderie. It's more okay. about relationships whereas guys are like we just want to win you know we want and girls want to win too but it's just a different dynamic and I'll I'll, I'll never forget to tell you a quick story so I'm I'm sitting we're in the middle of a game and I point to one of the girls on the bench and I'm like go in for so-and-so and And you know she's like okay and so I turn back around and I'm I'm coaching and I look over at the scores table and there's nobody there and so I turn back around to her and I'm like get in the game and now she's shaking me off like a, you know, like a major league pitcher with his catcher. Like, I don't like that sign. I don't like, like, no, you're telling me no in the middle of a game, you're not going to go in. I'm like, what the heck? So I bring her over to me because I'm trying to coach and yeah. counsel at the same time. Like, what's the deal? She's like, I don't want to go in the game. I'm like, why not? She, well, my friends are in the stands and I'm afraid if I make a mistake, they're going to make fun of me.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and I'm like, so are you serious? So what about your responsibility to your teammates? You know, to the other girls on the team? And then the tears start coming down the cheeks. And I'm like, oh, my God, am I really having a counseling session in the middle of a basketball game? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the answer was yes. And eventually I convinced her that she had a responsibility to her teammates, that she came to practice every day, worked hard, yeah. tried to get better herself, and tried to make her teammates better. And she deserves to play in this game because they need her. So I, I, I it was like playing psychology, you know, a psychologist. And I got eventually got her to go into the game. but. I've never had that happen before e- with guys. I mean, even, you know, young guys, you mm. know, middle school, they were like,
0: yeah, coach, I can't wait to play. Let's go. You know, yeah. so just a different mentality. There's a different mentality, Bruce. It's, it's, it's a good amount of skill from you One to be able to multitask to be coach and all, <laughs> almost therapist slash parent. Some some of the similar things I can imagine to what, how you would raise your own children. But yep. um, yeah, that. That's incredible, isn't it? But, like you said, if they're there for the team, and sometimes right. it is, it's really interesting if you because i I do a lot of work with people and reframing. And essentially, what you've just done there is reframed the thoughts that she's having and right. going, actually, well, you turn that around. Well what never mind what the people in the stands are going to think. What does that do to your team? Right And how will that make you feel when you realize you've let the team down, possibly right. by not playing? And then that just it puts, it's almost like sometimes we have blinkers on and we only see one piece of the pie and then right. when you bring all the others in and give a bit of context then you go ah that's the right you know that's the right reaction to have Or that's where i feel i want to be i.e joining the game right yeah and, and, i mean i
1: told her i said hey there's no uniform wearers on this team you just don't get to you know put on a uniform and sit on the bench <laughs> and say hey i'm on the team no I, you know you, you, yeah. this is this is about being part of a team this isn't just about sitting on the bench and I need you. I need you in the game now. I mean, I need you to give this this player a rest. I, I mean, so it, it was. Yeah, it, it's still something. I mean, and that's been, gosh, I, I don't know, ten years, twelve years ago. That I'm just like, wow, I never expected that. it's just still quite vivid in your mind, then. It, it's totally vivid. I mean, I can I can see it. I mean, I can I can almost smell the popcorn, you know, from the concession yeah. stands and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, it is. It was something that. It's like wow! I, I've just never experienced that before in my life. I never expected to, you know. Did you experience it again after that? No. So just the no. one off, just the one occasion, just the one time, just the, wow. I, you know. And I mean, but again, you had you had certain certain players that were, you know, I'm committed to the team. I'm, I want to do my best. And then you had other players that are like, yeah, I'm just kind of here because I can get a a physical education credit, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, and, and and that again was, you know, how do you balance that between the kids that I want to be here? I want to work hard. I want to win. I want to be successful versus the kids where, yeah, I don't really care if we win or not, you know, and, and that's, that's a hard thing to do. And, and I, I mean, I was able to cut some of the players that look talent wise, you just shouldn't be here. And, you know, your attitude isn't here, but, you know, I, I still had to have players to practice with and stuff like that. So it, it made it for a different dynamic.
0: Well, it's well, it's quite obvious that you like um, being kept on your toes. Sorry. <laughs> you think? <laughs> I think so. And to be fair, when you're on your toes, you're six foot nine, so you get yeah, you're taller. <laughs> exactly right. Um, I wanted to go into so one of the one of the talks you quite do often because you you got into kind of public speaking and things during the pandemic, didn't you?
1: Yeah, that was a brilliant move, wasn't it? You know, getting in, you know, hey, can you come out and hire me for your
0: speaking again? Oh, wait a minute, you're not having any of We can't leave our house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But as we've said before, this led us to this kind of digital generation, this kind of reaching out via Zoom, which I'm very, you know, very fortunate to be able to do and very privileged and, and grateful to have you on. Now, one of the talks really caught my eye and it's um, how to live your uncommon and extraordinary purpose. Now it was the extraordinary word that I, I like words beginning with X. I think it's great. You know, we talk about superpowers and all this stuff. Um, tell me a little bit more about where that came from or what I kind of what the crux yeah, I,
1: I mean that's that's sort of the subtitle of the book. You know, the book is called Sustainable Excellence. And and people will ask me, Well, you know, how do you define excellence? What is excellence? And you know, I, I write this book, and, and my answer is always I don't know, you know, because it, excellence you know you and i may look at well i mean let's just look at sports as we've been talking about that we may look at a rugby player and you may say hey that guy's excellent i may say yeah they're good but i'm not sure they're they're excellent so you know kind of excellence like beauty is sort of in the eye of the beholder you know and and so i really can't define it you have to define excellence for yourself and then the sustainable part of it sustainable excellence is what do we do you know we we move along in our lives, we have a goal, you know, we, we work hard, and we achieve that goal. And we're like, Oh, great, you know, and we put our feet up on the desk, and we pour ourselves a little drink. And we're like, man, I've arrived, I've made it. And then six months later, somebody surpassed us, because we don't sustain that excellence. We don't, ah. you know, we don't adapt, we don't, you know, change the way we do things to get better. And And that's, I think that's the problem. People get, you know, this is my goal. And when I reach that goal, I'm good. I'm just going to stay here. Well, if you stay here, people are going to pass you. People are going to, you know, hey, I saw the way he did that. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do this even more. So now I'm I, now I'm, I'm past that individual. So you're not sustaining your excellence. And I and I and to go back to your question about a, an uncommon and extraordinary life. I really think that that, and it's not hard. It's just finding your purpose in life, mm. using your unique gifts and talents and living that purpose. And if you do that, but but so many people don't. So many people live a casual life. And as, as a result of living that casual life, their dreams, their goals, their ambitions become a casualty of that unplanned living. So, mm. you know, you, I, I think it's just, it, you know, people ask me, well, how do you do that? How do you find your purpose? You search for it with an open heart, not an open mind, an open heart. There's a reason you were put on the face of this earth. And 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 I think that reason can change over time. And a lot of times we think that our purpose has to be our job. You know, what I do for yep. a living has to yep. be my purpose. It doesn't. You know, you can have a job over here that pays the bills, but your purpose is, I don't know, to write or, you know, to coach or, you know, to be a trainer or whatever it is. You know, so they don't have to be but people get so hung up on, you know, my purpose has got to be what I do for a living. It really doesn't.
0: No, it definitely doesn't. Um, Because I'm pretty sure that the hundreds of thousands of people that work checkouts, that the purpose isn't to work a checkout. Now, guaranteed, there will be some absolutely love it and that is you know and that marries with them and that's absolutely fantastic but I just wanted to give quite a black and white example of why it sure. doesn't need to be the case and some people you know some people do voluntary work some people do charity work some people right. you know do all sorts of myriad and I think it's even more possible nowadays to really do something and like you said it's extraordinary it's but it not necessarily using the, the intention of the word in, extraordinary to mean something that's super big and glamorous right. and expensive but it's just above ordinary right it's that right. idea of just taking that that level where you've almost settled you've almost right. kind of bit at peace with it but actually driving driving for a little bit more um right. i did like the fact that you said you use the word casual and then it becomes a casualty i think there's quite a nice little link between it being the same word right yeah um interestingly though so we're looking so you you mentioned then about people almost leapfrogging each other so you're becoming successful you hit your goal you take your foot off the gas and then somebody else will come surpass you so how does that work in terms of if you're looking at yourself and your own success but you're not necessarily comparing yourself to others but so say for example me um i'm self-employed i've you know, I've got my own business, I try loads of different things, I try and find what my passion is. What happens if you can't define what that success is? So that excellence that you're reaching for, that def- defined goal almost feels like it's a never-ending chase. And actually, you don't stop to necessarily, I suppose, take in that success. So even if you do put a goal, and you know, you take on some more clients one month, or you hit a goal for your salary one year, and then lo and behold, the day after, that just becomes normal. You know, that, that kind of the idea of success becomes normal and and it's trying to find that drive again because I find that a particular challenge coming out of a corporate workplace where I was for many years and you almost put yourself at a level, you almost put yourself on a pecking order and it's almost that idea of trying to grow from that or trying to see what you want within that. But then when you've got your own business, you know who sets that success, you know what, um, you know, what measuring, you know, what units do we use to measure that, you know,
1: and you make you make a great point. And, and that's a great question, because I think so many people in life, you know, we, we, at least here in the United States, you know, we're so into, hey, it's all about me. I'm important. I'm, you know, you know, it's all about me. But what do we do? well, you know, my identity is tied to that person liking me or me being like yes. that. Wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's all about you. But now you're worried about what somebody else thinks yes. or says or does. That drives me crazy. You know, I, I I have a very strong faith. And I always tell people, you know, at the end of your life, you're not going to be judged by what other people said or other people did. You'll mm-hmm. be judged by what you said or you did. So stop yeah. comparing yourself to other people. And they're, you know, their our, our daughter graduated from college at and like two years later, she's telling, him, you know, this guy I graduated with, you know, he's worth $10 million now and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, good for him. You yeah. should be happy that yeah. he is worth $10 million, But don't compare yourself to him because you're not him. Your road is, is your road. And, and that's why, you know, well, I have to define success based on. Well, you know, Jerry did this or or Matt did that or, you know, Sally did this. Well, if I'm not doing that, then I'm not successful. No, that's not the case at all. So I think you have to define what you believe success is for you, not for anybody else and not based on anybody else. So I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is is, you, you know, we, you're right. We get caught up, especially if you're, you know, like yourself, a business owner, and you, you got all kinds of irons in the fire and all kinds of things are going mm. on and you're done. And how often do you sit back and say, okay, wait a minute, I got, I got to take time out here. I got to think about this. What, what's my next move? What would be the best next <laughs> move for Matt? You know, and we don't do that because we're so busy with everything that's going on. And you know, I always wanted to be. in my, I want to be a lifelong learner. I, I want to learn new things. Oh, okay. Well, how can I apply that to what I'm doing now to make my business more successful? To make me more successful in life? Well, maybe I can't. You know, but I learned something. But maybe I'll do this now. And how does that apply? How can I use that? So I think it's we, we get too caught up in comparing ourselves to other people, mm. and we don't spend enough time on our own self to say. How do I define success? And how can I continue to be successful and sustain excellence once I've achieved it? Well,
0: that's a very good point. I always remember during the lockdowns that we had, obviously, during the pandemic and going from a job where I was maybe seeing, so I was doing all sorts, of had a, a chair exercise company, which I work with various charities of people with um, multiple sclerosis, dementia. Dementia was an awesome class to run, so challenging, but you know, you just got to meet some real characters and, and some real kind of... You saw some willpower as well, definitely. Um, and going from seeing maybe 300 people in person a week to then all of a sudden seeing nobody or maybe a few people online. And what it what it brought to the front for me from working with a coach and just working with a therapist, what I'm just talking about, it was sometimes the part of my identity was actually... I'm a helper. I'm a person that serves and provides. And and when people say thank you and please, it means a lot. And when Mm -hmm. people are grateful for what I do, it means a lot. But what the silence told me, and that was one of the most difficult periods of my life, and there's been a lot that's happened in my life. What it told me was that I was that, I needed that, I suppose, justification, that verification of what I did and who I was from other people so much but actually when there was silence and when I was in that no man's land of nothing coming in because nobody could, I actually just didn't appreciate myself. Mm-hmm. I needed other people to be able to do that. So there was times when, you know, even now there's times when I have a day off and sometimes it's, you just search for somebody, you feel yourself just going, oh, shall I talk to that person and help that person? Because then I'll get somebody saying thank you. And then it just kind of refills the battery. But it's, it's such an easy way, especially in a service industry or, you know, when we start talking about mental health, we start talking about, you know, giving time, empathy, um, compassion, even just showing compassion as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, all these, all these things are, are great and powerful, but they cause some challenges, right? Just to, to try and regulate that and to try and look after yourself.
1: It, it really does. And I, I was talking on a podcast yesterday about, you know, the most successful people you talked about, you know. Barack Obama you know and, and things like that. the most successful people use one word very effectively and that word is no no, yeah. I'm not going to do that. no I'm not going to get involved in that no and and they don't do it because they're trying to be mean. they do it because they understand there's only 24 hours in a day. and if if Matt wants to grow his business, yeah Matt can't be yes 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 yes. Oh, shoot. Now the day's (laughs) over and and, and I I haven't spent any time. So Matt needs to say, no, I can't do that right now or no, because I need to spend time on Matt. I need to spend time on my business. Mm. I need to figure out how I'm going to grow that business. So, you know, you think like, you know, some putts like me who, you know, I I, I do podcast, you know, if, if Barack Obama can say no all the time to people because he understands the value of time and using that time and that resource to his benefit and how he's, you know, okay, yeah, I can say yes to this, or I can spend some time thinking about this and have a much greater impact, because Mm -hmm. I was able to spend time thinking about what I needed to do to help more people, you know, to be involved with that, then then that's what we should all do. And and I'm not saying you should always say no to people you like you say, you know, you got validation from teaching dementia classes and things like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, if that's what validates you then do that. But at the same time, realize that this person who's asking him for that, or that person who's asking you for this, is that the best use of your time? Can you have a bigger impact on other people? And the answer may be no. I want to have the impact with just this one-on-one relationship, but that's
0: something you got to figure out. And it's making that conscious decision, isn't it? It's looking at, is it leading you down the path that you actually want to go down? Exactly. Is it it getting you one step closer to, to what your goal is, I suppose?
1: Yeah, to how you define success.
0: Yeah. Because it is, like you said, like you led with, it's subjective. It's it is. different from person to person. Because we all, um, we all view life through our own lens, don't we? Exactly. We're all essentially the cameras that are filming our own autobiographies, you know, whatever right. you want, to, biopics. Um, and actually, we, I was just trying to think of the guy's name then, but I can't remember it. Um, I might put it in the, in the description if I do think. But there was someone said that actually, so saying no can be difficult. So saying no naturally can sit in a place where actually, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to disappoint somebody? Are we going to get a reaction from that person for saying no? Are we? And it's all about what the other person is going to respond, and whether that's going to leave us feeling vulnerable, or whether we're going to feel like we have to justify. And there's all these thoughts around the decision of saying no. And he posed a very good point, and I think it was—I think it actually came from um, Richard Branson originally. Okay. Um, and it was actually. Not necessarily, we hear the idea of chasing no. So in terms of if you, the more no's that you give out, the more yeses. So in terms of opportunities and sales and stuff like that, the more you get out there, the more opportunities you have to say no, then you're going to get more that you say yes to. And that's the laws. But when it comes to saying no, but putting positive energy into that no and saying, thank you, thank you for that opportunity but I am not able to fulfill what you're asking me to fulfill, you know, and giving that, that gift of that, your attention, your, your endearment, you know, you've thought about it, but you're not able to. um, And it might be because you're doing something else. It might just be because it doesn't fit, but you still know that you've been true and it's showing that. And you know, there's so many different ways you can say, no, we all know that if there's no thought to it. No can make you feel like you've just been hit by a bus. Right. In the, you know, in the wrong sense, but, if you can get to a place where you can say no and you know you've done it for the right reasons, and you don't need to feel like you have to justify yourself, but you can, many of us will. It'll naturally feel like you want to tell the reason why, you know, but you can actually say no in a positive way. And I think sometimes saying no leads to better things happening anyway, because if you were going to say yes and give 70% of yourself, you're robbing somebody of the chance to say yes and give 100% of themselves.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, when I was my second job out of college, I worked for a large hospital, 5,000 employees. Mm. And, and I had the opportunity to work with the COO from time uh, from time to time, and a, a very young, dynamic woman. And and I remember, you know, people, she would have these meetings and, you know, everybody could come, whether it was a doctor or whether it was, you know, a food service worker or a laundry tech or whatever it was, and people would ask her questions. And, you know, I, I, I saw over my business career, a lot of people, you know, you make a suggestion. And what did we say? Oh, well, yeah, that's not, we'll we'll think about that. Or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put it in a committee, or we'll have a team to get together and figure it out. And that was just death by committee. That's all that was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't going to go anywhere. But if you if I'm asking a question, and and she was great at this, where here, why aren't we doing this? And she would say, "Well, we're not doing this." Or somebody say, "We should be doing this." And she'd say, "Well, no, we're not going to do that. And here's why we're going to do that." And and that always made the employees loved her because they felt like one, you're listening to me. You heard what I said. You're just not dismissing me because I work in the kitchen or something like that. You know, one, you heard what I said, and two, you gave me a reason that I can live with, that I can understand as to why we're not going to do this. And I think people appreciate that instead of saying, oh, well, we'll put a committee together and we'll look at it. Well, six months later, nothing's happened with that idea. That's why I say it's death by committee. And it's like, people feel more validated if you just say no to them upfront, than say, oh, we're gonna study it to death. And, And then we're not gonna do anything with it. So she was great about making people feel validated and then giving an explanation that they could live with as to why the
0: hospital wasn't going to do whatever they were suggesting which is why if it's if it's going to be a no never say maybe exactly exactly because it does nobody any good it makes the person that's asked sit and wait and wonder and almost gets hopes up and builds a different picture exactly you it sits there and it's it's worth nothing apart from you know it will be of detriment to the person that you eventually say no to because you sat with it and it's, you know, it, it's never going to happen. So yeah, uh, you, you set an expectation instead of by saying, maybe you set an expectation yeah. and, and
1: that expectation is never going to get met. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're right. You're better off just saying no and not creating that expectation.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been some very bold conversations today, Terry. I love this. Um, I did too. But- it's been great talking with you. Good, good. And, that, and that's the aim as well and, and I love doing this and you know some people ask me like do you get paid for it and there are ways you can monetize a podcast I haven't I'm um, be honest past the designing stuff and past the uploading I'm not an expert on it um but I just love doing it I love meeting new people and just seeing what conversations come out of next to nothing I mean I don't write notes I'm, I've never anyone that knows me has known me for long enough I've, I barely write in this technological age, age anyway um but there is two things I have written down and I want to just finish with the two questions for you, which I didn't sure. tell you about, so it might put you on the spot, but I'll see how we're... Uh... That's okay. Well, you've been, at, you've, you've been in SWAT, right? You've got you've got a better reaction than me, okay? <laughs> Don't bet on it. <laughs> Let's just not include guns. <laughs> so, okay, the first question then. So I'm all about superheroes. I'm crazy about it. I've got an armful of Marvel tattoos. You know, I'm, I'm mad on superheroes. So if you could have any superhero power... What would it be and why? Boy, any superhero power. I,
1: boy, I, I I don't know. I, I, I you know, what, what came to my mind initially, and I'll throw this out and, and you know, I'll probably regret this, but I, I I wish I wish I could have the ability to change people's mindset. You know, to 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 to, Ooh, okay. to, yeah. to look at that and say, you know, you're looking at that the wrong way. You know, you should be looking at it this way, and just have a superpower that just you know, change that a little bit. And here, now look at it that from that lens. So, I guess I would say that I, I'd ha- I'd like to have the ability to change people's mindset.
0: That's a really interesting answer, actually. Now, I don't know if there's a superhero that has that, but it's- well, well, te- yeah technically they're the ones that tell people that I'm just trying to think but like almost like mind readers but they're able yeah. to well yeah yeah they're not necessarily the good guys so we have to be we have to be careful that we're offering the suggestion of the right answer and the right good point good point without giving it um, good point so second question then is so I don't have anyone on this podcast that I don't think is a superhero in my view okay which is why this is a superhero finder so i want to ask you what do you think your superpower is
1: I, I think it's it's a power that I I developed. I don't think it was something I was born with, mm-hmm. and I think I got this from being a negotiator. And that's the importance of listening to understand as opposed to listening to reply. I I, I think I'm in that situation where you know I you may say something and and I'm an I may agree with you, I may mm-hmm. not agree with you, but instead of you know, hurry up, Matt, say what you're going to say, because I want to say what I want to say. It's more, hmm, hey, Matt, where where are you coming from with that? You know, and and let's talk about that. Let's let's dialogue. Let's understand Mm. each other, because if we could do that as a society, oh, my God, can you imagine what we could get done instead of yelling at each other when we're screaming at each other? Neither one of us can hear each other. So I guess listening to understand is something that I've really kind of developed.
0: It's such an important distinction to make, isn't it? Because listening as a whole doesn't really describe the impact that listening can have. Like you say, I think we've all felt times we've we've thought of something to say, and you're just waiting for that person to finish. And the more you yeah. notice yourself doing it, you realize that you're drowning out their conversation. The lips right. are moving, but you're not listening. Right. And then when <laughs> you say something right. when yeah. you say something and they've changed the subject, then you feel really awkward. <laughs>
1: yeah, you, <laughs> you feel get, like an idiot, like, oh <laughs>
0: Perfect. And I'm going to steal a little bit of knowledge for you now. So I would like to know, Terry, if there's anything, any one kind of one tip, now kind of an extension to the listing that you just talked about, but if there was any one thing, one message that you could leave for for everyone that's listening to this today, um, what would it be? Can I leave you with a story? Absolutely. Okay. So
1: I've always been a big fan of Westerns growing up, you know, Cowboys and Indians and things like that. Uh, 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. You may have seen it. It was a a huge blockbuster. It starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made-up characters just for the movie. Now, Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a card shark and a gunslinger. And Wyatt Earp, his entire life, had been a lawman. And somehow these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds form this very close friendship. Mm. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying at a hospital in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died at that hospital. He's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt, at this point in his life, is destitute. He has no money. He has no job. He has no prospects for a job. So every day comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in this almost last scene in the movie, the two men are talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal. There's just life. Matt, you and I know people that are kind of just sitting back there that are like, you know, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. When that occurs, I'll have a successful life. When this arises, I'll have a significant life. I guess what I'd like to leave your listeners with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there. Find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart.
0: Epic. Thank you for that. Sure. Wow. What a story. Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure. Matt, thanks for
1: having me on. It was a blast talking with you.
0: You're welcome. And I hope we can do this again soon.
1: I would love it.